Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Memphis, a weekly podcast exploring the contours of the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. Each episode, we will take you to the heart of the city. The Heart of Memphis is brought to you by a partnership between Lux Creative and Lindenwood Christian Church. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Heart of Memphis. We appreciate you taking the time to download this podcast. As we say every week, if you love the content that we are putting out, feel free to share it. Give us a rating and review on your um, podcasting app of choice. We have some amazing stories that we have told. We've got some great stories in the hopper that we're going to tell going forward, and we would love to get the word out about The Heart of Memphis. Today, we are excited to welcome to our podcast Dove Award-winning musician, Dear friend of mine, Depp Britt. Depp, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. It's good to be here. And the, the only dub I uh, actually won, Jeff, was actually a collaboration. So I never did it on my own, but I've been nominated several times. Okay. Well, take, take the credit, man. I will take the credit. Your mom told everybody <laughs> that you... That's like her. That's just like her. I have, you know, nobody loves us like our mama. At least you know, you and I have my talked. My mama loves me, absolutely. My, my favorite story about my mom is I was honorable mention all conference in football for two years, which is just like the worst recognition you can get. And then I was also the captain of the football team my senior year. And to this day, my mother says, Jeff was captain of the All-State football team. <laughs> so I'm sure your mother told told everybody, you've got a Dove, a Grammy, an oh, Emmy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, a Golden Globe. You've got it all. Uh, well, Deb, you, like I, um, come from Kentucky. I do. So you, you grew up out there in western Kentucky. Walk us through where you grew up and what it was like to, um, to grow up in a setting like that. I grew up in Scottsville, Kentucky, about an hour out of Nashville by Bowling Green. And it was a great place. Uh, Church was everything. That's what we did. And I grew up in a, in a family. I, I grew up at Dover Missionary Baptist Church. <laughs> and it, was, it really was wonderful. Growing up was always, every week was church. You know, we would, my parents sang. They had a gospel group. And they were extremely talented, as, as talented as anybody out there. But they thought that they needed to stay home, raise a family. They weren't going on the road. I didn't have that aspect. But, Jeff, every weekend we were in church somewhere singing at night on Saturday night, Friday night, Sunday at somebody's decoration. Every church had their big reunion where they would have decoration and dinner on the ground. And that's the way we spent our entire summer every Sunday singing someplace and getting fed. And as a kid, we just ran around out in the yard until it was my time to come up and sing my song. <laughs> it, was, it was a great life. So that sounds a little more like, oh, brother, where art thou Some, than Midtown Memphis in 2022. Exactly. And that's the way that I was raised. But there was such a, a love and a culture. And also raised in a place where uh, it, it took a village to raise a child. I mean, Everybody was an aunt, an uncle, a parent. Didn't matter who they were, they they kept you in check and told your parents if you weren't acting the way you were supposed to be. So there was something that was a little. There was a lot of love, I guess, uh, in that place, which I, I'm very thankful for. So obviously, music played a major role in your childhood. Always talk to us about how you developed a love for music, and then how that start to started to chart your life as you move forward into young adulthood. I guess I was an awkward child. I was skinny. I was ugly, or I thought I was. My mother would always tell me, "Oh, you're so cute." No, you're not ugly, but I felt like ugly. I used to close the bathroom door and look in the mirror and ask God to change the way I look, and and that was 
a part of who I was. I felt awkward that I didn't fit in, something was wrong. But when it came to music, whether it was band playing the trumpet or if it was singing, I was number one. I was always the best. It took away that ugly ducking kind of feeling. And uh, I think that's why it was so into my life because it was the one thing that I really could do. So the arts is a, is a reoccurring theme on our show. You know, we, we live in a culture that, um, you know, I'm going to sound like a grumpy old man here, but we do live in an inter- Instagram culture where image is everything, presentation is everything. And then you compound that with one of my great loves, which is athletics and sports and, and for non-awkward people. The arts seems to level the playing ground in a way that, that few things do, or at least gives other it gives a lot of people that feel left out an opportunity to soar. Did it do that for you? It did. Um, it changed my entire life. It's probably who I am and the reason that I survived through all of this. And when you look back, it's kind of funny. I think there was a plan to get me where I needed to be each time. Uh, I, was, I had an incredible choir director who made sure that we were at competition, that we were everything singing. So it just was not just that gospel music. I, I actually had train voice lessons and everything else. And he kind of stared me because he grew up in a gospel singing family just like I did and was teaching in school. And then my band director uh, with trumpet, I wound up being first chair trumpet the last year that I was in band and all of that and had competition. So got to do a lot of things. And through all of that, I, I actually got a scholarship at Western for music. Oh. And I had to choose between band or, or voice, and I wanted voice. You wanted voice. So you had an opportunity to go to Western Kentucky. Yep. And you went on another path. Tell us about the first steps into the professional music business. Uh, I had got the scholarship to Western and uh, was ready to go. And I didn't want to teach because I really kind of saw through my music director that he was not doing what he wanted to do. He had a fabulous voice. He wanted to perform, but he was teaching got married and was teaching, and I looked at him and thought, he's not happy. This is not what he wants to do. If I had it all to do over again, I probably would have got that degree in music, so in later in life I could work in a church as a minister or do something like that with the music, but I didn't because I went and auditioned for Opryland USA, and they hired me at 18. Oh, my goodness. So I'm singing and dancing. I've never danced before in my entire life. I learned real quick because – this was something brand new. The lights, the camaraderie. Suddenly I'm growing up. I'm um, seeing other people showing me that there's something else besides what's going on. And the one time that I'll, I'll run back real fast, when I was 16, I actually made it with All Student Group USA. I represented the state of Kentucky, and I was in Europe for five weeks singing and traveling. And that was the first time that I realized it was something besides Scottsville, Kentucky, but this was on steroids. I am on stage in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm living my best life. Well, for those of us that did not grow up in the Southern gospel culture, what in the world is Opryland, USA? Is this like a Jesus Vacation Land? Is no, it- no, no. It was. It represented all music. It, okay. was, it was there where country music is number one, but we had Broadway, and we had okay. theater, and we had. It, it represented everything. It was just about America. America and music. And it just happened that they realized that gospel music was an incredible force, and they wanted to put together a group. They knew that I had gospel background, so they had this huge audition. There was like 30 men that they auditioned to put together the group that was going to represent the theme park. And uh, I knew 
from the time that I auditioned that I would be the tenor. I knew what God was doing. I did not want to sing gospel music. I wanted to be a country star. I wanted to be a pop star. I wanted to do anything. I just wanted to be a star. I used to tell myself, hey, if I don't make it by the time I'm 25, I don't even want to live. So that was ridiculous because I did make it. It just was gospel music. So they put the group together, and we started out as Opryland's gospel quartet. Porter Wagner produced my first album. He's a wonderful man, by the way. We miss him. Yeah, I've forgiven him for what he did to Dolly. Yeah, (laughs) or what Dolly did to him. Uh, It depends on your perspective. (laughs) You're exactly right. Yeah, but they they both were great souls. Dolly's wonderful. They both take care of people and and, uh, young artists. And so he was a great influence. Um, And then we Went from there, and suddenly we got a huge following. And I had my own show every year. We, we were working it. And then it was the Grand Ole Opry all the time. Mm-hmm. So what was great about the gospel music that we had, I ministered in churches on the road and in concert venues only three or four months out of the year. And the rest of the time, we were right there at Opryland where people were coming from Europe and everywhere. So we had a huge following everywhere. It was pretty amazing. We, we, we probably started something... There, Bob Whitaker was the head of the park at the time and had hired me, and he put this group together. And he was also very gracious of giving it to us and letting it be us. He didn't control it and own us. He just used us, and it was just a wonderful marriage between the park and us. All right, so that gives you a platform at a young age. Right. One of the quotes I've often heard and been haunted by is that sometimes our – skill set exceeds our maturity. What was it like being on a big stage at, at Opryland at, at such a young age? What did that do to your heart? What did that do to your perspective? Well, it made me pretty happy. I had purpose. I had uh, I had a great living. I was making a great living financially. I was living the life. Um, I had success. I had fame. But it wasn't to the point of where I couldn't go out shopping or I couldn't do the things. It was just that perfect combination of I have a following. People come and say, hey, I love your music. Uh, I would go to places like there was two situations that will make you laugh. I was out with a friend. I'm in uh, Disney World, and I'm in line for a ride. And this woman comes up to me and she says, don't you sing at Opryland with the Cumberland boys? I said, yes. She says, I saw your performance. It's wonderful. And she goes back to her husband and this is what she says. I'd know that watch anywhere. (laughs) I had a gold nugget watch that I had bought in Memphis, Tennessee. I had taken a vacation. There's a big gold show and I was wearing that watch and it was pretty unique, but everybody knew it. And another time I'm on Notre Dame in Paris and somebody approaches me and says, I just saw you in Nashville two weeks ago. You're wonderful. So it didn't matter where I went and traveled. Uh, I had recognition. And this was kind of great for some kid who used to look in the mirror and think how ugly that he was. And then somewhere around 20, all of a sudden, I guess I grew out of that. And suddenly, I mean, I don't mean this to sound wrong, but I think that people need to hear this because I know a lot of people, You suddenly you are actually good-looking, and people find you to be attractive, but you still see yourself ugly. It takes a long time to get over that. Uh, that's why you fight and you work, and, and people think that maybe you're quiet or you're stuck up. No, we're intimidated because we haven't grown out of the emotion of who we were, and that's not actually what we represent now, but you have those emotions. They're hard to get over. So the kid that thought he was ugly, thought he was awkward, 
thought he was clumsy, all of a sudden is getting chased down in France yeah. and recognized. He's living his best life. There you go. There you go. All right, so take us further on this journey. You are climbing up the ladder. You're, you're, you referenced the group the Cumberland Boys. I know that that is a group that you sang with for many years and toured. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to be a part of that group and the impact it had on your career trajectory. Um, there was a lot of wonderful things about that group. Um, we were just a bunch of guys who hit it and, and was making it. I don't know that we were ever truly accepted. The fans accepted us big time. We had a huge following. But it wasn't the Southern gospel following. We tried to go into this genre, country Christian, which was new. We kind of helped start that, but it never really took off because there wasn't any force. There was no charts. Everything has to do with charts. And there wasn't an official Southern gospel music chart except for a, a magazine called The Singing News, who to this day still owns it. If you look at any other magazine chart for gospel music, it, it has no authority. It, it's just, it's nothing. It, it, you can actually buy your way into those charts. Um, the Southern Gospel chart was very difficult for us to get in because they did not like us. They thought that we had too much secular following. They didn't see us as being a true ministry, and that's what they wanted. But the problem was that all the other artists that we worked with Everybody started out as a family singing in church, like in Scottsville, Kentucky, and then they start getting on the road, and they start making money, and it changes you. Money will change you, and it becomes a business. So suddenly that spiritual, heartfelt thing that you're doing becomes a business, and then there's competition. And then you try to make sure that your competition is not successful because you want to be number one. You want to get the award. You need to have the number one song so that you sell more records and all this kind of thing. It it's just like any other business. You have to be very, very careful. Southern Gospel was so competitive. When I started meeting friends in Nashville who were in the contemporary music business, they were much better at not losing their soul for the for what they were doing. It, it's a whole different mentality. It, it's not that they didn't have problems, but, I mean, if somebody had an issue in contemporary music sexual or drugs or anything like that, there was always a love that went out. In Southern gospel music, if anyone had any affliction or anything that happened or they had a small fall, oh, they were kicked out, don't talk to them. They were, you know, and then the next group would get up and talk about them on stage about how awful they were and God brought them down. I mean, that's the way the difference in the two mentality. It's almost the difference between that country Baptist preacher hitting the pulpit and then someone who is actually teaching love and grace. And that's the difference in the music genre. So you're telling me there's a country gospel mafia. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Oh, wow. Well, that, that leads into a question I really wanted to ask you. This is the one question I prepared that I really would value your insight in on. The Christian entertainment industry has uh, had a lot of success, you talked about how money changes everything. That's true in the church as, 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 as it is in Wall Street. I can attest to that. And at the same time, there is, there is, there, there's a gift that it can be, that you know, Christian music can be a gift to people from all kinds of perspectives and all kinds of styles. But there's an undercurrent of, of competitiveness. Um, competition can be good, and it can also bring you down. What is your critique or affirmation of the Christian entertainment industry having been 
absolutely at the center of it. I believe that if you're going to call yourself a Christian artist and stand up for those principles and do that, that you need to make sure that you were called to do what you're doing. And a lot of times people just find that it's an easy way to make money and travel up and down the highway. Some of these guys never raised their children. They were gone three and four weeks at a time on a bus, came in for three days, went back out on a bus and toured, and they watched their children, the wives, stayed at home and, and raised these kids. They probably wanted to be away from home, and that's why they were on the road. You know, sometimes absence makes the heart or makes the marriage last, let's just say that. But it, um, there's a lot of people out there who whose heart and their heart and their actions did not mirror what was coming out of their mouths on stage. And I think that that's the one thing that you have to discern. And I don't mean this to sound wrong, but I would go to Southern Gospel concerts. We'd be a part of a concert where you would have 2,000 people in the audience, and they all left their churches. This was their church. It really, I, I hate to use the word, but it really is a cult. It it is, and I'm going to make people mad when they hear me say this, but I am telling you, I lived it. It is a cult. Be careful. I will let you have the final word on that. <laughs> that sounds like that is born out of pain and experience. It is pain and experience, and I don't mean any harm. There's beautiful people, and it was wonderful, and people's lives were touched. But the big, the big, uh, Big picture of this is there is a lot of people who did not go to church. They travel all across the country hearing the same songs, following these people, having relationships with them, and that is their church. That is their God. It is a cult. Well, I know along the way you made your way to Branson, which, which is the southern Jesus capital of the world. It I will is. I will say that. I know I'm a little flippant about some things, but I've been around there. Uh, tell me about Branson, and then there became a point where you exited this ministry. So the, take us through that journey. Well, the way I got to Branson was Cumberland boys were pretty much finished. This was something gone. I had two people who were leaving. Uh, there was some tension there. The The powers that be came to me and wanted to change things. This is the chart. This is the, I won't mention names, but there were people that ran the business who came to me and said, I, I'm not going to support you and your business if you don't make these changes, get rid of these people and do this. So we did. I had a record label. They were in it. So I had this meeting between the mafia boss and the <laughs> record label. And this is pretty much true. And I made those changes and changed the name to Cumberland Quartet, and we became very centered into Southern gospel music because this was the promise. So Branson picked up my contract. Opryland closed. So now I don't have the stage. I don't have the Opry. I don't have all the television uh, they sold all of that. Nashville Network, we were on air, you know, at least once every two weeks uh, all across the world. And uh, so I had my own show in Branson. That worked out. My friend Mike Patrick brought me there. He was a producer, brought me into the uh, Silver Dollar City, and that's where I hung out and uh, had a great nine-year run. Uh, when the contract ended and they were going to do something different there, I knew that this was gone. It never was going to be the same. Uh, I watched as all of the whole industry shrank. It wasn't the same. There wasn't as many people buying records, not as many people coming. Music was changing, and we weren't changing. I'm stuck now in this older southern gospel venue, and the music is changing, and I just decided that it was time to get out. It was 
time to quit living a lie in my life in many ways, trying to make everybody else happy and not living for me. I got really angry at gospel music. I got angry at the church. I got angry at everything and just ran. So you exit all of that. I exited all of that. And that launched you on a long, winding journey to get back to where you got that watch. <laughs> so you, yes. you, you leave Branson. How did you get to Memphis? I, I had a huge house on the lake. It took two years to get rid of that house. By the time it was over with, I did not have a penny in my pocket. I am living with a best friend. And uh, at that point, uh, a door opened up. I had a friend of a friend here in Memphis who there was a new furniture store, and they needed a designer. And in the concept of what I didn't talk about is that I had a producer in Chicago um, who booked us, and I had he and his wife, and she was an interior designer. And she came to my house in Nashville, and I had them over for a glass of wine. And uh, she walks in the door and says, oh, my gosh, your house is beautiful. Who was your designer? And I said, I didn't have a designer. I did it myself. She says, well, you need to quit singing, and you need to come work for me. She started flying me to Chicago, took me to market, and taught me all the ropes. So I had this skill in interior design. I've been doing it all my life. I, I love the concept of just color and putting things together, and I'm pretty good at it. So I came to Memphis and uh, went to this store, and they hired me as the interior designer. And that's what I've been doing ever since, and I've been here in Memphis. You've been here in Memphis ever since. Ever since. Well, what do you, what do you like about Memphis? What do you love about Memphis? It's different than Nashville. It's different than Branson. I was the only reason was this job making pretty good money, mm-hmm. and I had a good uh, start here. And I started off living downtown in Memphis, which changed everything. I, I loved Europe, I loved New York, I loved cities, and suddenly I'm living downtown with a trolley and these restaurants, and I can walk everywhere. Living on the river, I fell in love with Memphis. It was nothing like it, and then I fell in love with people in Memphis, and what I learned. Here, when you make a friend, they're a friend for life. You have to work really hard to get rid of those people. They will always be there for you, take care of you. It's uh, the biggest little city I've ever been in. I've only lived here just short of three years, and that is one of the reoccurring themes. Is This is the, the biggest small city or the smallest big city in yeah. America, and I haven't met anybody. Every time I meet somebody new, they know somebody I know, and I do not have the social circle that, that you do or, or other people that I know do. So I, I can attest to that. Well, I know that this is a podcast that we explore everything from business to arts and culture and music, but I kind of want to give you a, a, one last uh as we start to wrap up, I want to give you an invitation. I want to invite you to talk about how you put your faith back together. One of the things that is a is a trend in our world right now. The, the buzzword is deconstruction. I had to take apart the faith I grew up with. I had to reject the faith that nurtured me. And you can value the people while letting go of a lot of what they taught you. You, I, you now sing in the band here at Lindenwood Christian Church every week. You have a, a commitment to, to the church that I'm not sure you thought you would ever have again. And you, how did you put your faith back together, and how can that be of, of, of assistance to, to many people that are struggling with the, the rigidness they grew up with, um, I'm going to say the hypocrisy that they grew up with, the, the baptizing of politics that, that we see? How did you put your faith back together? Uh, it was a it was a very long journey. I had visited several churches. I was feeling the need, and I had left the church for many years. Didn't want to go. I thought, hey, 
I'm a Christian. I don't have to go to church to, to, to be a Christian. And I realize now that I need to go to church to be a good one. I need that fellowship. I need people. I need people who think like I do. The problem is sometimes we get caught in churches where people don't think like we do. I grew up running from a lot of issues in my life. Um, I was gay. And, and I, it makes me very nervous to say that. There are people, my family, I don't want people to hear that. Uh, my mom is cool. Everybody is cool with it. Um, it. It's just that I know what people are suddenly thinking. Well, you're not a real Christian. And there are people that I still am around who will say that God doesn't love me and I'm going to burn in hell. What I had to do was find myself and realize I had bad relationships. Through all this time, I had relationships. I will leave those people out trying to find myself. But I had to find depth first. And that place was coming to Lindenwood. I had a friend here who followed me when I was a kid, one of the elders in our church at Lindenwood, my dear friend Michael Taylor kept telling me about Lindenwood Christian Church, and I knew him because he does design work. And um, we had so much in common that I came. And I really, um, at that point, couldn't sing. I'd drive down the road. I'd lost my voice, couldn't do anything. And uh, this was the most wonderful, healing, spiritual place that I had ever been. I felt Every week that I had to come back, I had to come back with the music. So I came to the WOW service, and uh, I bet, Jeff, I was here three years before anybody really realized that I was here. I would come and go, and, and I knew Michael, and that was pretty much it. Then Michael started getting me involved in the church, and then, you know, here, take up the collection. Here, go serve communion. Do this. And suddenly I, I, I'm in a... a a church where it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter who you love. It's all about uh, God. And I've never seen a church that gives to the community like Lindenwood, where there are spiritual values, where you actually walk in, and there is a genuine love here. There is an excitement, and that's real. You can't fake that. The Holy Spirit's here. And for the first time, I love myself. Mm. I'm married. My pastor, my wonderful pastor, I wonder who that is, married me, which changed my entire life that someone would accept who I am. I'm a deacon here in the church, probably don't deserve that, but I love working, and I get to say Hey, I don't deserve to be our minister, but it's okay. Yeah, you do. But it's amazing, and I just encourage people to, wherever you are in this country, there are churches just like this one. And if you feel that, I mean, that... Whatever's going on in your life, there is a community somewhere who feels like you that can make you empower yourself and grow. And because of this, I've grown spiritually. Thank you for sharing that. I know that probably took some courage. Well, so I just want to thank you for that. It, it does take courage, but I know that there's other people out there who are living the same life and they need to, to hear that it's okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Last question mm. What do you love about this city? What do I love about this city? I love everything. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not just one answer. First of all, I love the spirit. I love the people. I love the food. I love this dirty little town on the river that has so much character, has so much music, so much the artistry. I mean, everything is here. It's just a big city full of arts everywhere. Whether you look at uh, painting, if you look at music, if you look at food, it's just, it's a great place to celebrate life. 
Well, Deb Britt, thank you so much for your story, for your vulnerability. We appreciate you sharing this this long, winding journey from from Scottsville, Kentucky, here to the heart of Memphis. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my privilege. Thank you. We want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Heart of Memphis, a weekly podcast exploring the contours of the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. I think in this episode, we were able to take you to the heart of the city.